bread and water is so easily turned into tea and toast, there's always time to partake with a friend. I'm Jennifer Stowe from Three Sisters Tea Room. And I'm Julia Stowe from Blossom Arts. Sharing tea for a moment today because life is beautiful. Welcome to Tea and Toast. Hi, Mom. How are you today? I'm doing really well, Julia. It's so good to see you. and it's so uh, good to be recording a podcast. Indeed it is. I'm very excited about our topic for today. As you know, uh, we've been spending the summer talking about certain types of women, and we're <laughs> going to share that on the podcast today. I don't want to give away any surprises, but before we get started, I noticed you've got your favorite Klimt mug again today. I do. And what's inside? Good old-fashioned Assam. <laughs> well, now, Julia, it is a 96-degree Tennessee day in August, and you're drinking hot tea. It is never too hot for a cup of tea. <laughs> well, you know I And you make it you. perfectly. So. Oh, thank you, sweetheart. Uh, yes, I understand. I drink hot tea on hot days, too, but today I've gone a different route. I have a beautiful wine goblet full of kombucha which, as I'm sure everybody knows, is a tea, a fermented tea mm -hmm. beverage that is generally consumed chilled. Yeah. So this was a ferment of various black and green teas. We let it sit with a little culture in it for not too long because it's mm -hmm. pretty warm, maybe four or five days, and then we get sort of a tangy tea beverage that borders on if it goes too long apple <laughs> cider vinegar or uh, if it doesn't go long enough syrupy, syrupy. sweet uh, tea but this is just perfect has a little ginger in it and it's very delicious refreshing on this cold day on this I'm sorry on this hot day so anyways well you know it is kind of the dog days of summer <laughs> The heat has arrived. We were spoiled through much of June and July. With hardly a summer. It was so lovely. It was eternal spring, really, <laughs> wasn't it? But the garden behind the cottage, that uh, yes. behind the tea room that you've been working on so diligently, is just beautiful. Starting to come alive. It really is. And now with this heavy heat, you know, it's wilting a little, but I think it's going to really do well in, this, in the September, so I'm yes. excited. We were just saying that all the plants back there really do have another least month, month and a half, maybe even two months of growing season, yes. right up to the frost. So if they can just I'm get excited. over the hot. Yes. <laughs> but, um, and I'm very excited for that. But um, we did have a tea yesterday, and yes. we decided not to serve hot black tea, but we went with kind of... Um, a tepid herbals. <laughs> which that doesn't sound very appealing. But it did room taste temperature. Good. Yes, room temperature herbals. We steeped them and then we did let them kind of cool a little bit. Yes. So that was a little bit lighter for yes. the ladies. And that very attended. summery flavors. Indeed. Yes. But so other than our beautiful garden, what other sort of cultural uh, moments are you here to recommend? Well, we as a family enjoyed something that we haven't been able to enjoy for um, over a year, and that was a live concert Yes, um, just a few weeks ago, mm -hmm. maybe not even that long ago, um, and a very unique concert it was. It was a home concert, yes. right? Very small, lovely gathering in um, the artist's home, and what made this performance so unique is it was two classically trained musicians, excellent, excellent musicians, playing music inspired by Frank Sinatra. Yes. 
So it was quite a blend of two different genres of music and it worked perfectly. Yes, there was a harpist yes. and a flautist. Yes. And the flute, you know, makes a little bit more sense with the jazz sound. It's been in the playing that style of music for many years uh, and it sounded beautiful, but the harp just blew us away and it's mimic of every other instrument in the band really especially a jazz piano a jazz piano but also a double bass yeah it really did um oh my goodness it was really wonderful yes i had my i was a little skeptical <laughs> and the two women that played mm -hmm. were classmates at the new england conservatory of music yeah and they now reside down here in franklin and they put on this beautiful concert and they've been touring Yes, um, we throughout were, this last year. Yes, so we were so fortunate to have this final performance in their home, or, or one of the flats' yes. home, and it was so personal and so intimate, and we got to talk to them, and it was really, really encouraging. It really was. The name of the duo? They're called Harvest Arts, and um, they do have more concerts coming up, especially around Christmas, yes. so uh, we're excited to to go to more of them. Couldn't recommend them yes, highly. Yes, very highly. Highly. And I believe they even have a CD in the works. That's right. They did announce that at the end, a oh. Christmas CD. Yes. They were starting work yes. on that. So we're excited to have that. That would be a blessing. Yeah, that really was a real, um, really encouraging, uplifting very, evening of, of yes. culture. I, I enjoyed it very much. And the flautist is also an artist and uh, displays her artwork with the concerts, which is a fun twist. That's right. She had some beautiful oil paintings around mm -hmm. the room for sale. Right. Well, that was so fun. Thanks so much for sharing that, Julia. But um, today we have a special kind of uh, end of summer podcast uh, topic to share with you. And you want to introduce it? Well, it's been the topic of our last three teas mm -hmm. through the summer, our afternoon teas, and it is phenomenal women. And we have highlighted three really exceptional women throughout history and it's been so much fun. Yes, they may have been exceptional women, but they were doubly exceptional to me because of their tea connection. Yes, they were all connected to tea. <laughs> Which may surprise people as we start to tell their stories, but they were pretty famous. Uh, well, not all of them. They had some notoriety in um, their day. In their yeah. day. But they also had a great connection to tea, which is probably lesser known. Yes. So I thought maybe it would be good to start with the earliest, the oldest uh, gal who would have been 1600s, uh, Caterina de Braganza. We call her Catherine of Braganza. Mm -hmm. Yes. And she is the one we credit with why we even drink tea today, right? That is true. Now, there is a little bit of folklore surrounding yeah. how big an influence she had. But the bottom line was she was a phenomenal woman. And we need to introduce why we keep saying that. We should. We chose the title based on a poem by Maya Angelou called Phenomenal Woman. And... It was a poem that just struck us with its celebration and joy of what it is to be feminine and to be a woman. And, uh, and I like to think that these three ladies sort of embraced that as well. Yes, women that had a little bit of spunk. Yes. And the refrain is just so precious. Can you share that with us? Because I'm a woman, phenomenally. Phenomenal woman, that's me. And we encourage everyone to look up Phenomenal Woman by Maya Angelou. It's a great poem. Yes. 
So the first gal that we're going to talk about is Catherine of, of Braganza, and she was born in the early 1600s. Mm -hmm. She was a Portuguese princess. Her dad was King John of Portugal, and uh, basically poor Catherine, as she grew up, she was raised in a convent, which was very typical of, mm -hmm. of the day. Uh, when she got to be a certain age, her mother knew she needed to be married properly, and the poor girl never had a chance for love. She was being used very much as a political pawn, mm -hmm. and her family looked around and said, what's a good ally? And they basically came down to the King of France or the King of England. The King of France was Louis XIV at the time, mm -hmm. and the King of England would have been Charles II. And Portugal, you have to keep in mind, at this point had an empire of their own. They had colonies around the world in various spots. So mother, Queen Lucia, she decided um, Charles of England was a better bet because the Portuguese needed the protection of the British Navy mm -hmm. and the British military, which was very strong at that time. And um, England accepted because Portugal had some key colonized ports, mm -hmm. in particular, India. So keep that in mind for a little bit later on in the story. So at 21, Catherine is described as being neither young nor beautiful. Oh. Poor girl. And, you know, hardly an old maid at 21, 21. but it was viewed that Poor way, thing. apparently. And she was also Catholic. So she's traveling to Anglican, England, mm -hmm. and she's getting married to a man she's never met before who's quite a bit older than her and has a notorious reputation as having a lot of mistresses. He already, at this time, with their marriage, has several children out of wedlock. So they marry, but because uh, Catherine is Catholic, they have a Catholic wedding first. Mm -hmm. This is private, only the key players are there, and it's very early in the morning. And then they have an Anglican wedding later on, with all the pomp and circumstance. A true a, royal wedding. A true royal wedding. And uh, then they're married. It's not long before Charles is gone and, and Catherine is in the palace by herself. Keep in mind, there was a language barrier. Mm -hmm. She didn't speak English, so she had to learn English. Her whole um, court, you know, all the ladies yes. that were around her, they were all Portuguese speaking uh, yeah. because they, she brought them. And little by little, Charles is replacing them with his mistresses, can you believe it, and other women mm -hmm. that he has promised positions to. So little by little, she's losing even that connection to home. Poor girl. So she is married for several years to Charles. They never have an heir. She has several miscarriages. She uh, has various fevers, um, scarlet fever, mm -hmm. and etc. So she had at one point she is pregnant and has a illness and loses the child and and so it's just it's very very tragic, tragic life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. But through it all. One thing that Catherine did bring to her court was her love of tea. She had grown up on tea. We have to put in perspective that in the 1600s, Portugal was trading with India, who was getting tea from China. India was a port of theirs, so they could access all the Indian mm -hmm. trade items. And since tea from China came into the Indian ports, they could get that along with spices, spices and silk yes. and other sorts of wonderful things. 
So she had a tea habit from her earliest years in the convent. She brought it to England. There are reports that she brought quantities of tea in her dowry. She shared it with in her bedchambers with mm -hmm. her ladies-in-waiting, and it became the beverage of choice. So it becomes very much the desired beverage of England, and we can really credit Catherine for introducing England on a grand scale to embrace the beverage of tea. This is not to say that Catherine brought in afternoon mm -hmm. tea, the meal that we all think of, the little sandwiches and such. This is just the beverage and the, the habit of drinking tea. Yeah. So throughout their marriage, there's never an heir. Charles is encouraged to divorce Catherine. Of course, she's Catholic and she doesn't want that to happen. He never does. He says in a couple of places that he loved her eyes. And that just makes me happy <laughs> to think that she had had a hard life. Yeah. And that at least he respected her in some way. Mm -hmm. It is said that he never spoke ill about her and he often defended her when other cabinet members or other people in political positions said divorce her or she's not right. He always defended her. It came to pass that Catherine began to enjoy English life. She embraced some English customs like picnics, which just <laughs> makes me happy. Um, she also loved long walks. She loved fishing. Isn't that nice? So they stayed Very married. Pastoral mm -hmm. pursuits. They, they stayed married throughout her entire life until, the, until Charles died, and she remained in England after his death. So that's probably tells us something. She did go back to Portugal and died in Portugal. She went back when she was ill. So throughout her, her royal life, she weathered many storms. In fact, in 1665, the bubonic plague hit England and London in particular, mm -hmm. and Catherine and Charles never left the palace. They stayed in London and they did that purposefully as a sign of support and solidarity to their people. And then just a year later, there was the great fire of London. And again, they refused to leave, staying, choosing instead to stay with their people. So the marriage didn't bring about an heir, and maybe it didn't bring about a great romance, but it did give England um, a, a way to trade for tea with that um, Indian port that was um, a colony of, of Portugal at that time. And so I like to think about Catherine just kind of finishing out her days, sipping her tea, and having picnics in a happy, quiet life. She seems like the kind of person who would have enjoyed a happy, quiet life. Yes, and we just, we do owe a great debt to Catherine. Yes. <laughs> oh. So that's our first phenomenal yes. woman. Yes. Who's next? Okay, well, number two is Penelope Barker. Ever hear of her? Well, I think I have, and we're jumping ahead about a century, right? Yes. yes. This We're moving up to the Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. She was 1770s in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. And a little thing called the Boston Tea Party had happened in December of 1773. So we're moving forward about six or eight months. There mm -hmm. have been other tea parties throughout yes. the colonies. Which is fascinating. Mm -hmm. I think they often get overlooked and we just focus on the Boston Tea Party, but it really did start a chain of, of many different um, tea-related tea rebellious events. Mm -hmm. yeah. It really did. Now, I have to say that the other re tea rebellions 
were not um, as violent, if you will. Mm -hmm. No tea was actually harmed in, um, <laughs> as much as in the Boston Tea Party. And also, um, it was under cloak of darkness, it was mm -hmm. disguised. The other tea rebellions were very much in the broad uh, daylight, and they were in just very purposeful, and they... So they were... don't have quite the air of mystery about right. them. So, but Penelope, you've got to really give this lady credit. She was uh, three times married and three times widowed. And the last time she was married, uh, she inherited a significant amount of land in North Carolina, making mm -hmm. her the largest landowner female at the time. And so because she had that property, it gave her some... I guess political power in or a certainly way. Certainly social standing. Social power and social standing. You're right, honey. And she used that to her advantage. She was well connected uh, with the women in the area. And so she was willing to lead this rebellion where she invited every woman in the town, every woman that she knew, to her home. And she had written out an edict to the King of England, to King George, demanding that he remove the taxes on the goods and especially on tea. And these ladies signed their full names. And this is notable because at this point in time, this kind of demand to the king could have been viewed as treasonous. Absolutely. And... Treason was a capital offense. These women had to realize the position that they were putting themselves in to sign mm -hmm. this document, this edict. So they signed the edict, they mailed it off to the king, they drank their liberty tea, <laughs> not their black tea, which was liberty tea, there's many, many legends to what that might have been but it was basically anything you could find that had a little flavor it wasn't not gonna, always good flavor it wasn't gonna kill you right so in the garden and so um they mailed it off to england and you know it actually got to the king but what happened was it got to a lot of the journalists too it was it was just released mm -hmm. and the british uh journalists they they just mocked these women they they made terrible cartoons about them. They, they just, it was terrible. In this country, these women were elevated to almost a noble status for their bravery. Yes. It was and a very heroic act. It was. Penelope actually chides the Sons of Liberty for dressing up as Indians. Disguising Indian. themselves. It, disguising themselves and going in under dark. Because along with all of her lady guests, she told them to bring all their tea. And they threw it into the Wilmington waters right there off uh, right where she was living. So not only did they send this strongly worded edict to the king to demand the tax be removed off of tea, but they, they dumped all the tea that they personally owned and vowed that they would not let another drop of, <laughs> of uh, British tea cross their lips. So Penelope didn't... I mean, she really threw tea in the water. So why do we think she's a phenomenal woman <laughs> in the tea world? But I really love how feisty she was and how she saw a problem. And she knew because of some advantages mm -hmm. um, that she had 
had in her life that she could maybe make a difference. And I really admire her for that. And I like to think that tea brought all those women together originally. And, uh, and even though they were drinking Liberty tea at the time of signing this document, yes. they still were tea drinkers at heart. <laughs> they really were. And believe me, it was a sacrifice yes. for these ladies to give up their beloved brew. In fact, there are poems and, and quotes that these ladies um, wrote for the newspaper articles just expressing how hard it is to give up this tea. You know, I mean, sympathize. Yeah. Have you ever tried to give up coffee or something yeah. like that? So it was, a, they were making a political statement and they were standing by it. And I just really think that's great. I think that's wonderful too. And there was a wonderful quote and I forget the entire thing from Penelope, but it ended with, they will know who we are. And I just think that she was determined to use the little bit of influence she had uh, to make make a change. Yes, and, yes. And when that quote is in reference to the Sons, Sons of Liberty, of Liberty yes. In, disguise, yes. in disguise. So that was a great one. Yes. Well, so that's Penelope. She was 1700. And now are we going to jump up to the 19th century? Yes, right on the cusp, the turn of the 20th century. And we have a really, probably my favorite phenomenal woman in this series. And her name was Queen Alexandra. And she was a British queen consort, and she was the daughter-in-law of Queen Victoria. She became the Queen of England when Queen Victoria died. So right at the turn of the century. Right at the turn of the century, 1901, right? She was from Denmark, and she's notable for many reasons. First of all, when, when she got married, she was the Princess of Wales for longer than any other Princess of Wales. Uh, and she was very young, very beautiful. She was tall, slim, she had this gorgeous long hair. Think about who'd been on the throne for <laughs> 60 plus years, maybe, maybe a little more. Point. Queen Victoria, she was kind of petite and plump and, you know, not exactly a fashion icon. <laughs> That's right. Well, Alexandra was a breath of fresh air. The British people loved her. The pomp and circumstance around this royal wedding was bar none. It was just a really grand occasion. She was only 18, and she had a couple of sensitivities. She had a little scar on her neck, and she had a limp, a congenital deformity. Her one leg was just a little bit longer than the other. So she always wore these choker collars, mm -hmm with her hair up and beautiful updos, but a big wide choker collar, or she wore her hair down and long and kind of wrapped around that shoulder where her uh, scar was. And because of her limp, she wore two different heights of shoes. But um, a little bit later on in our story, I'll let you know that she got tired of wearing these shoes. It was not like our shoes today with a little lift. They just weren't very comfortable. But anyways, she was a young bride. She married another scoundrel. He had, again, many mistresses. But um, Alexandra was a little different. She did speak English, and she wanted to get involved mm -hmm. in politics. Well, the royal family would not let her get involved in anything to do politically. They said, you can be in charge of non-confrontational charity events. What's a girl to do? One thing that Alexandra is well known for is 
her love of spending money. She was very flamboyant in this and she often saw a need and just filled it. So she's very philanthropic minded. And this was really a lovely quality and it followed her throughout her life. So the king was, he died only 10 years after taking the throne. So she was then the dowager queen for many, many years. Mm -hmm. She stayed in England till she died. And it's because of this later life that we remember her from a tea perspective. Um, but, oh, I do want to tell you a couple things. Uh, she, because I told you she was young and beautiful and tall and had this long, gorgeous hair, she did become a little bit of a fashion icon. Well, I'm just thinking of fashion trends at the end of the uh, 19th century and the high collars, yes. and it's very much yes. influenced by her. It really was. She really did become a fashion setter, a trendsetter, and even to the point where women's fashion started developing these really high collars right up to their chin mm -hmm. and kind of curving out. Um, not the Elizabethan yes. fan fold collars, but just these lovely collars. Or the wide choker necklaces. Yes. You can look back and see in that time mm -hmm. period, the Edwardian time period. Yes. So, but uh, the Alexandra Limp started to come into fashion, if you can believe That's that. That's what I just think is so funny. Women actually started having their shoes made to different heights. When she finally said, listen, I'm queen, I don't need to hide this from the world anymore, and she took off her shoes and walked, and her limp was noticed, she set a trend for <laughs> Alexandra's limp. So anyways, I think that's just so funny. She also had, um, I, I think it was rheumatic fever, and she went almost totally deaf. Yes. So she had a handicap there as well, mm -hmm. and she didn't often go out in public. Uh, without very well rehearsed situation. I think part of that made her a really lovely um, person to look back on because she did spend so much time with her family and yes. so much of um, the uh, records of her and our perception of her is as a, a, a loving mother and very much a family person. Oh, you said it. She adored her children. She had six children and she said that her happiest moments are spent tucking her children into bed playing in the nursery, having meals with her children. I mean, that's, that's really quite a credit to her. And quite unique yes. for a royal family. I agree. But that was her highest priority was, yeah. was being with her children. So why do we remember her for tea? Well, she was British, and I'm sure she drank plenty of tea <laughs> in, 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 in her day. But because she was relegated to these non-confrontational charity events, um, she decided that she was going to take full advantage of that, and she looked around and observed that there were a lot of very hard-working young girls in service uh, industries mm -hmm. and in in the castles that she lived in her uh, right mm -hmm. there around her and she decided that she was going to get all of her ladies-in-waiting and some other women um, in the court and aristocracy and nobility and they were going to have something that she called a maid's tea. And so once a year, on the grounds of Buckingham Palace, they opened up the, the gates and had all the working class women come in and all of the nobility and the aristocratic ladies served the maids. And they had 
cakes. Oh, it, you know, they had all the little <laughs> treats. No, no savory sandwiches, all sweets and cups of tea. And there were places for the ladies to, the girls to sit on the ground and have their, you know, on the grass and have, and have their tea. And there were canopies that were put up and it was just a real treat for these servant girls. And it was done every year that she was queen and it continued for many years after um, her husband died. So I think that's really something. So it was really a lasting legacy that continued for quite some time. It did. Now they, they maybe do a modified version of that today. It's not the same. But one legacy that does live on today is something called um, Alexandra Day or Rose Day. Mm -hmm. And this was another charitable project that she had. Uh, it was, was her brainchild. And she, again, saw a lot of impoverished young girls out of work and didn't have a means of making money. Um, and she decided as a fundraiser for the hospital in London, because she was very instrumental in setting up some mm -hmm. of these initial hospitals, um, that they would have these young girls, they would hire these young girls to make paper roses. And they would then on Rose Day sell these paper roses and it's usually in June, I think. Yes, it's a different. We did our afternoon tea in June, right over Alexandra's Rose Day. Yes, that's right. And sometimes it varies from year to year. I don't know if it's the something first Monday right. or something like that. So it varies, but it's usually in June. And they sell these little paper roses on the street, and all of the money goes to the charity for the hospital. It still does. They still do this today. If you can think in this country, we have the poppies, mm -hmm. and we put some money for charity in a yeah. in a little bowl and we get a poppy. It's something akin to that. But something this, people could wear. Right. And, yeah. So it's very common for the um, Prime Minister of England to be the first one to buy paper rose on Rose Day, Alexandra Rose Day, and put his coins for donation for the, the hospitals in the little box. So that actually still goes on today, and um, one of her descendants runs the, you know, oversees it. And I don't know who makes the roses anymore, but you know, let's hope <laughs> somebody who needs to make some money does. But anyway, I just thought she was a truly a phenomenal woman. Well, what a, a fabulous, phenomenal woman to end on because she's connected to tea, and her um, influence really does live on today. Yes, it does. And if you can weave tea into a lasting <laughs> legacy, I think you're pretty phenomenal. Something I love about how all of these three women unite in different ways. They were all sort of spunky and feisty, like you said, and also very um, uh, home-loving and uh, patriotic in their different ways. and uh, Feminine. And very feminine. Yes. And I just... I love the idea of them all sitting together having picnic <laughs> with tea because yes. I think that's something they all loved. Yes, all three of them. Yes. All three. Oh, I love that idea. Yes, from the different centuries having a little tea party. Yes. yes. Oh wow, that sounds lovely. Thank you so much, Jules. It's been a lovely. Oh, thank you, Mom. It's been wonderful. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you for listening to Tea and Toast. I'm Jennifer Stowe of Three Sisters Tea Room, and I'm Julia Stowe of Blossom Arts. Find us online at threesisterstearoom.com or blossomartstn.com and on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.